Philippians chapter 1 on sin and judgment. Chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose." But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again." Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, 
but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Amen. Remember, in our study of the New Testament topic of sin and judgment, the reason we have started this series has to do with how many passages of the New Testament are often overlooked in reference to the sin of man and the judgment of God. People portray the New Testament as loving and gracious in ways that the Old Testament never was or barely was, but now everything has changed and everything is love, grace, and mercy, compassion, kindness, and there is no stern warning. There is no need for discernment. There's no need to reject sin. There's no need to understand the holiness of God. There's no need to fear and tremble before God. That is the view, the common view that we have today. And in order to combat it, we have undertaken this study of the New Testament. So now we have come to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. And remember, we are emphasizing those aspects that require sin and judgment, or require true knowledge of sin and judgment. At the outset, in verses 1 and 2, we have the Apostle Paul addressing the church at Philippi. This was one of the places, one of the cities he had visited. We can see some background to this in the book of Acts chapter 16. There he explains, or the, um, the Apostle Luke, he explains there what he and Paul experienced in this city. At the beginning here, we have a couple of points to make. One is that it, it says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. He, they are identifying themselves as slaves of Christ. They belong to Christ doing his will. That is their lifelong dedication. They're not living after their conversion for their own will, but they are living to please the will of their master. Also, you may note, you may never heard, have heard this, but there are some scholars, so-called, who believe that Paul and Timothy, when it says Paul and Timothy writing to Philippi, to the Philippians, that Timothy helped Paul write it, gave him advice, showed him where he was right or showed him where he was wrong. That Timothy contributed in that sense to this letter. But that is contrary. That is contrary to the inspiration of the scripture and is contrary to the authority of the Apostle Paul. Those scholars, liberal scholars, so-called Christian scholars, they say that in order to undermine the inspiration and authority of the Apostle Paul. But that's false. It's not true. Timothy was not an apostle. He was not an author. He was not inspired. There is no evidence in the New Testament that he was any of those. He was certainly a disciple and a very faithful disciple of the Apostle Paul, but he did not have the authority or the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But these are two men who would be known to the Philippians, who would have been respected by the Philippians, and that is why they are addressed at the beginning, or they are noted at the beginning to write this. 
Then we also see that it mentions overseers and deacons. It might be a matter of fact, it might be an obvious truth to us that the churches had overseers or elders or pastors or shepherds. These words are interchangeable words, such as found in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Overseers being the synonym of a pastor, a shepherd, or an elder. That these are the two offices of a local church. Overseers and deacons, the two. Not one or the other, but both of them. And not any other hierarchy in the local church. If we compare and contrast this verse with 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, we would see that this is the case, as well as some other passages. However, there are people who add offices in the local church, add positions, add roles in the local church that are not found here. Some churches, some denominations do so. And then there is also a movement to get rid of all leadership. All leadership, yes. No leaders, everyone is a leader. Everyone is the one, every person in a church guides and directs and the church has no technical or no positional, no office of any leadership. Everyone is a leader. No one is a follower. Yes, that doctrine is also gaining some attention these days. But this is not the case. It says clearly overseers and deacons. And if we compare with the pastoral epistles in Timothy and Titus, we find that to be the case clearly in the New Testament. Then he says in verse 2, Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace, which means there is a true grace and a true peace. There is a false grace and a false peace. The true grace is implied here because it's coming from the Apostle Paul. In Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, he actually uses the phrase true grace. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Therefore, we must use judgment or discernment to know who is preaching true grace And who's preaching false grace? True grace, according to the Bible, is that which is 100% the gift of God, not because of our works, not because of our will, not because of our free will or goodwill. And this is granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, 2 Timothy 1.9 teaches. And then that grace, which justifies us or saves us from our sin is also the grace that is continually at work in us. That's why he is praying for it. He desires the Philippians to have more of this grace. It is that grace that is continually working in our current Christian life to enable us to overcome sin. That's the reason he's wishing for more grace or praying for more grace for the Philippians, so that we might overcome sin currently in our Christian life. The grace of God is a grace that is powerful. It's not powerless. It's not impotent. It's not weak. It's not feeble. It has power to change and to help us 
overcome sin. The other is peace. Peace, there is a true peace which brings reconciliation between us and God. Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the true peace. Another aspect of true peace is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. 2.14, speaking of the division that is between Jews and Gentiles, this division is destroyed in Christ. 2.14, for he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. This is true peace between us and God and between one another so that in Christ we experience this true peace. But there is also a false peace, a false peace such as in Jeremiah 8, Jeremiah 8, 10 to 12. Jeremiah 8 and verse 10. Therefore, I will give their wives to others, their fields to new owners, because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is greedy for gain. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone practices deceit. And they heal the brokenness of the daughter of my people superficially by saying, peace, peace. But there is no peace. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They certainly were not ashamed, but they did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time of their punishment, they shall be brought down, declares the Lord. That's the false peace. Another note in Philippians 1-2 is this distinction between the persons of the Trinity. In this case, we have Father and Son. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. There are distinctions in the three persons of the Trinity. They are not the same person. Yes, they are the same God, three persons, one God. God is Spirit. God is Spirit, John 4, 24. And the three persons who are Spirit are the one God according to Scripture. And here it's clear that there's a distinction in persons after Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, right there in Philippians 1, verse 2. And in reference to the Holy Spirit, look at Philippians 1, 9. Philippians 1, 9, which mentions the Spirit, uh, excuse me, one nineteen. Philippians 1, 19, it mentions the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Fellowship of the Spirit. Fellowship of the Spirit. Which shows Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But everyone, or not everyone, believes this. There are those who say, who are anti-Trinitarians, who say that There is only one person who is God, one God, and that one person was the Father in the Old Testament, 
was the Son during the ministry of Christ, and now he is the Holy Spirit. So God changes his role or his mode or his function or his office. He changes who he is, but it's just one person who changes and puts on one mask in the Old Testament, then removes that mask and puts on another mask in the New Testament during the ministry of Christ. And then after the ascension of Christ, he has this third mask, and that mask is the Holy Spirit. No, that's not true. That is heresy, and it leads to hell because it's idolatry. 1 John 5, 21, even theological error is idolatry. 1 John 5, 21, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Now, 3 to 11, 3 to 11, his prayer, his prayer, his sincere and genuine prayer to God. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Is this kind of prayer applicable to us? Meaning, are we going to be found this way? To have one toward another, that when we participate, when we help each other in the furtherance of the gospel, when we help each other, do we think of each other like this and thank God for each other? This is the way we ought to be. We ought to be commended with one another or toward one another in this way because we have participated together to further the gospel. And when we do so, it will overflow in our prayers to God. Thankful prayers to God. Every prayer should have an element of thanksgiving, even when we are anxious. Why so? Philippians 4, 4 to 7. Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What does he see? Verse 6, Philippians 1.6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's confident that he has seen good fruit in the Philippians so that he understands that when God begins to work in them, God will end that work in them too. He'll start it and then he'll complete it or perfect it. He'll, he'll reach his conclusion in our life. And this conclusion will take place on the day of Christ Jesus. He says, until the day of Christ Jesus. That day of Christ Jesus is the return of Christ. When he returns, he's going to receive us, and that, at that point, he will perfect in us what he started in us. What God started in us will be perfected 
when Jesus returns. This is a verse that speaks of the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints. Every true believer will persevere in faith, will be steadfast in faith until the day of Christ Jesus, because it is God working in us to do so. He says this here in 1 verse 6. He also speaks of what God has granted in verse 29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Verses 29 and 30 are saying that God grants us faith at the outset of our conversion and also grants to us suffering at the outset of our conversion. And he uses both gifts in us to work in us to bring about our final salvation. Philippians 2.12 and 13, likewise. Philippians 2.12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's, this is addressed to believers not unbelievers. It's addressed to believers. And the believer is told to work out his salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for it because he already has it upon his conversion, upon being justified by faith in Christ. Not work for your salvation, but work out your salvation. It has to be working out or displaying itself, manifesting itself, proving itself in the way we live, and we should live in fear and trembling, knowing that God is at work in us. God who started to work in us, Philippians 1.6 and Philippians 1.29, is continuing to work in us to work for his good pleasure, to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is what he is doing to perfect the good work he began in us from beginning to end, from the start to completion. What he began, he will perfect. Also, seven. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. He says that he has a valid basis to feel this way about the Philippians. Why so? Because they have, in his imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, partaken of the grace of God with him. They have not abandoned the apostle because of his imprisonment which reminds us he is writing this letter in a Roman prison. He's writing this letter having been accused falsely and not knowing what's going to happen to him. 
he's writing this letter in dire straits. He's not writing this letter in a comfortable office chair. He's not writing this letter in a palace. He's writing it in a Roman prison. And in this Roman prison, he's not mulling, he's not moping and groping, he's not mumbling and grumbling, complaining about his circumstances. He's thinking about the Philippian church. He's concerned about the welfare of the Philippian church, which teaches us that we ought to have this same attitude when we are suffering, when we are persecuted. He continues with his feelings or thoughts toward them. Verses 8 and following, 8 to 11. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. In this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. God is his witness. That means he knows He's telling the truth. He knows he has a good and clear conscience. He's not saying these things in a pretense. He's not saying these things as though he's flattering them. He's not excessive. He's saying what is true of them and honest and sincere from within, that he has an affection for them, the affection of Christ Jesus. He has a sincere love of the brethren. That's why he's speaking this way. And then his prayer. It continues for their love to, still, uh, to abound still more and more. They have love, but they can have more, which would also be true of us. It's true that we have love for each other, but it's not right to remain stagnant in that love. We have to keep growing. We have to keep excelling. He says, still more and more. And how is this love strengthened? How is love for each other buttressed? By real knowledge, he says, real knowledge and all discernment. Real knowledge implies that there is false knowledge, fake knowledge, untrue knowledge, fictional knowledge. We don't need to learn things that are speculative, fictional, mythological, uncertain, doubtful. We need real knowledge. And also, all discernment. This is our very word we're talking about. They have discernment, but he's praying for them, coupled with true love, to abound still more and more. It has to, true love has to be coupled, has to be joined with all discernment. It's not good to disengage the mind and to be undiscerning. It's not good to disengage the mind to say, well, after I believed, that's okay, but it's too much work to think. It's too much work to discern. It's too much work to always be making a difference in deciding what is true and what is false. We can't be that way. The prayer is for us to do this all the more. 
And why? Because it's necessary in verse 10 to approve the things that are excellent. We have to approve the things that are excellent. Excellent in spiritual matters. Not all things are excellent. Many things are deficient. Many things are weak. Many things are corrupt and impure. But our goal must be to approve. For us to have confirmation, first for ourselves and then teach to others, this kind of approval of what is excellent. To know the difference between right and wrong, that which is good and that which is evil. He uses this again in Philippians 4. Philippians 4, 8 and 9. This term excellence. Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. The things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace shall be with you. If we're supposed to dwell on these things, then it must mean we have to know the difference between what's true and false, what's honorable and dishonorable, what's right and what's wrong, what's pure and impure, what's lovely and unlovely, what's of good repute and what's of ill repute, what's excellent and what is deficient, what's worthy of praise and what's not worthy of praise. Everything does not fit into those categories, which this letter makes very clear. And this requires discernment or knowledge, uh, true knowledge, real knowledge, and judgment. And verse 10, back to Philippians 1.10, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ Jesus, there again he is looking forward to the return of Christ. And the day of Christ Jesus, it must present us to him sincere and blameless. Sincerity, the opposite of sincerity, of course, is insincerity, but dishonesty, hypocrisy, deceit, these would be the opposite of being sincere. We cannot have any remnants of that. We have to day by day overcome. The same with when he says blameless. To be blameless, that is, that people should not be able to bring a charge against us, to reproach us, to say, well, it's obvious that you're not a Christian because you do thus and so. You contradict some very clear, overt scriptures, and you're not a Christian. You're not blameless. You're blameworthy. That shouldn't be the case with us. We ought to be seeking for perfection. Not that we attain it now, but we strive for it. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. Verse 11. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Here again, we aren't filled, but we need to be filled. 
He says, having been filled, we must be filled with the fruit of righteousness. That's the righteous, good, true fruit that must be manifested in us, which means there's, if there is the fruit of righteousness, there must also be the fruit of wickedness. There's rotten fruit and there's good fruit. We must discern and know the difference. Matthew 7, Matthew chapter 7, 7.13 to 20. Matthew 7.13 to 20 or to 23. Good and rotten fruit. We must be discerning. And even Jesus, our Lord, tells us, teaches us to discern what is the fruit of righteousness and what is the fruit of wickedness? Matthew seven thirteen, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the rotten tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a rotten tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits." Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There is a narrow gate. There is a small, small gate. And few are those who find it, 13 and 14. Then he wants us to beware, to practice discernment, to know the difference between false prophets and true prophets. Just because they come in sheep's clothing does not mean they are sheep. We have to scratch beneath the surface of the skin and find out who they are because they are ravenous wolves. And then from their doctrine... And from their deeds, from both their teaching and their life, we will see the fruit of who they are. This fruit is not merely moral fruit or ethical fruit. It's also the fruit of their teaching, the fruit of their theology. So theologically and morally, what is actually being manifested? What do we actually see? We have to know the difference. And he says, there's good trees that bear good fruit, rotten trees that bear bad fruit. Those are the two kinds. And it's impossible to mix and mingle them. Verse 18, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a rotten tree produce good fruit. And twice he says, verse 16 and verse 20, you will know them by their fruits. 20, so then you will know them by their fruits. We will be able to discern who's right, who's wrong, who's got the fruit of righteousness, who has the fruit of wickedness. 
And He expects us to be engaged this way. Not disengaged, not passive, and not relativistic or universalistic. And this all for the glory and praise of God. Not our glory, not our praise. The world was not created to manifest the love of God universally, eternally, and unconditionally. The universal, eternal, and unconditional love of God is not the reason the world was created. Those doctrines are false. The world was created primarily for the glory and praise of God. Secondarily, we have the justice of God manifested against the reprobate, against the wicked, who never repent. And then we have the grace of God manifested in the elect, who eventually, at some point in life, they do come to believe in Christ. And both of these secondary aspects are for the glory and praise of God. And in this case, he's talking about the redemptive grace of God to the glory and praise of God. We now come to verses 12 to 14. 12 to 14. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Here we have a great irony. A great irony. That is, his imprisonment did not muzzle the gospel. It didn't stop the gospel. Sometimes it does, but at other times it doesn't, like here. He says it turns out for the greater progress of the gospel, for the cause of Christ. The cause of Christ, his reason for living, it became well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. All those in charge of the prisoners and everyone else, has, they have all come to know who the apostle is, what he is all about. The gospel has spread in those quarters, in the prison and beyond. And then also beyond, outside, in the church. It says, most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. In the hearts of the timid, in the hearts of the cowards, in the hearts of of the wicked, when they see trouble, they flee. When they see persecution, they backtrack and fall away. But in the elect, when they see these afflictions and when they see another brother afflicted, what does it cause them to do in 14? They have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. When they see an intrepid apostle, believer, when they see a fearless believer 
acting in ways that are commendable and virtuous, what do they do? They are driven to do the same, to have courage without fear, to preach the word of God without fear. This is why also, little by little and day by day, all of us need to build up courage and to overcome the fear of man. We cannot be man-pleasers, but God-pleasers. We have to do that, and this takes day-by-day experiences of ourselves preaching the Word of God, and it also takes looking to others who have exemplified fearless preaching of the gospel. And we have to be the same. Not retract, not backtrack, but progress in our courage. Even when it's someone in desperation, like the apostle in prison. 15 to 18. 15 to 18 is another section here. We must carefully read it to understand what he's saying. What is he saying here in 15 to 18? Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Does he mean that the doctrine of Christ does not matter? Is he saying people get things wrong and it's okay to be inaccurate? It's okay to believe false doctrine and you can still be saved and it's still good that Christ is preached? Is he saying that you can deny the Trinity and still go to heaven? Is he saying you can deny the virgin birth and still go to heaven? Is he saying you can deny substitutionary atonement and go to heaven? Is he saying you can deny the resurrection, the return of Christ, the day of judgment, heaven and hell? Is he saying you can deny all those doctrines? Is he saying that you can have a different view? Everybody doesn't believe the same thing about grace. We don't have to believe the same thing, do we? And if we don't believe the same thing about the true grace of God and stand firm in it, and we say, well, yes, God is gracious, and because God is gracious, he lets us live in sin. He lets us do our own thing. And if you say we're not supposed to and we're supposed to repent of sin, then you're a Pharisee, you're a legalist, you're a cult. If they say that, is that right or wrong? Is that what Paul is saying here? Is that what the apostle is saying? The doctrine doesn't matter. What you believe doesn't really matter. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is, those who are preaching the true Christ may preach it with wrong motives, evil motives. They may preach the true doctrine of Christ, the true gospel of Christ, but their motives are suspicious. Their motives are evil. He says in 15, envy and strife. Verse 17, selfish ambition. He says in 18, 
pretense. Pretense. Not in truth or not in a sincere and genuine heart. That's the opposite of pretense. But he says that it is Christ being preached. It says in 15, preaching Christ. He doesn't say preaching a false Christ. He means preaching the true Christ with the wrong motive. He says in verse 17, proclaim Christ. He says again in verse 18, Christ is proclaimed. And he means the true Christ is proclaimed. Now we might wonder, are there biblical examples of this? Someone who has the right words, but the wrong motives, and is actually an unbeliever. The right words with the wrong motives, and actually an unbeliever. Is that possible? Yes. King Saul. King Saul, in 1 Samuel chapter 10, God... God endowed him with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied at times. And his heart was changed at times and he did the right thing. In the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapters 22 to 24, Numbers chapters 22 to 24, a false prophet, a diviner, a, a diviner or spiritist named Balaam, the son of Baor, he was hired by the foreign kings of Moab and Midian to pronounce a curse on Israel, the nation Israel. But God prevented that from happening and made him be overcome by the Spirit of God. It says in 24 verse 2, Numbers 24 2, And Balaam lifted his eyes and saw Israel camping tribe by tribe, and the Spirit of God came upon him. The Spirit of God came upon him, and he preached the truth. He pronounced a blessing instead of a curse. It says in Joshua 24.10, Joshua 24.10, But I was not willing to listen to Balaam. So he had... To bless you, a key word there. He had to bless you, and I delivered you from his hand. God made him, God compelled him by the Spirit of God upon him. He made him preach the truth. So he had the right words, but he was not a believer. We could also say this about Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was the son of the devil. John 6, 66 to 71, he's called the son of the devil. One of, he is a devil, Judas Iscariot. But Judas Iscariot was commissioned to preach the gospel. He was with Jesus and the apostles throughout the ministry of Christ. And he was commissioned and sent out and even had miraculous powers to preach. Matthew 10, verse 1 says, And having summoned, Matthew 10, 1, And having summoned his twelve disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Matthew 10, 1. And this, these twelve, includes Judas Iscariot. Matthew 10, 4 says, Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. 
he was commissioned to preach the truth. And he did. He went out preaching the gospel. And we already read Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Jesus said, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, Depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. These are some of the examples where they preach the truth, but they don't really belong to God. And so when he says he rejoices, he rejoices that the truth is proclaimed not because of the messenger, but because of the message. And God is able to use the message for his divine purposes, either in the elect or in the reprobate. That's what he means here in Philippians 1. There is no way he means they are preaching a different Christ because he already condemned the false Christs and the false gospels in Galatians 1, 6-10, put those people under a curse. And in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen to 15 they too belong to Satan. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen to 15 Okay, then, 1, 19, Philippians 1, 19. For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, but I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better." Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. He is confident. Notice how he says, I know, am convinced. I shall. He says phrases like this in this part, 19 to 26. Well, what is his confidence? What does he know? He says that his deliverance through your prayers and the provision of Jesus Christ, he is going to be delivered in one way or another through the prayers of the saints and the spirit of Jesus Christ. One way or another, God's will will be accomplished in him. He says here in verse 20, he's not going to be put to shame in anything. He's not going to be put to shame in anything. Why does he believe this? Because he is expecting the day of Christ. He's expecting to meet Christ face to face. Then he will be vindicated then the enemies of Christ will be judged when he returns. He knows this. And even if it means his imminent death, if he dies by being executed by the Romans, it's still not a shameful thing. 
Because he says so in verse 20, Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And then if he lives, he's going to live for Christ. If he dies, he's going to gain Christ. He's going to gain Christ in verse 21, if he dies. And then he says that if he lives in the flesh, not in sinful flesh, but he means if he lives in this world, having a body of flesh and bones. That's the meaning of verse 22. If I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. In his heart, he has a dilemma. If he continues living, he has a lot of fruitful labor among the Philippians and others to preach the gospel and to teach them and to encourage them to press on. But then he has the desire, he says in 23, I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. If they execute him, if they put him to death, he says that he has this desire to depart and be with Christ. That's a whole lot better. Of course, it would be unjust, it would be unfair, it would be evil for them to put him to death. But though his body will die, his spirit or soul will depart. That's the key word right there in 23. Depart and be with Christ. That's why the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And when Stephen was being stoned to death before he died, he finally said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Acts chapter 7 and verse 59. This passage as well. To depart is to be with Christ. This militates against extinctionism or annihilationism. This is against soul sleep. These doctrines are false doctrines. There's no soul sleep and there is no annihilation or extinction of the human upon death, whether believer or unbeliever. In this case, we're talking about believers. The believer does not cease to exist upon death. No, his spirit, his inner man goes to be with Christ until the day of Christ when he receives his resurrected, glorified, immortal body. Yes, he has that in mind. Notice Philippians 3. Philippians 3, 20 to 21. When the Lord Jesus returns, this is what will happen. Philippians 3, 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to 
himself. When the day of Christ happens, when he returns, the glorified body he has, we will also have. And this is what we eagerly await. We die now and our spirit is with Christ. And later, our spirit will have a glorified body. Then, if he remains on in the flesh, if he continues to live, he says, it's more necessary for your sake. There, there would be great benefit to you. And as well, 25 and 26, and convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. When they reunite, it will turn out for progress, joy in the faith, and proud confidence to abound in Christ. That's his goal. He doesn't have any kind of earthly goal, no carnal goals. It's not about fame. It's not about fortune. Not about fun for the apostle. It's about ministry and building up others in the faith. 27 to 30. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Our conduct, people say our conduct, our behavior, the way we live does not matter. If we're Christians, it doesn't matter. But here he says it does matter. He says we ought to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. If Christ is holy, if he is pure, if he is our sinless Savior, then this should be our goal from the beginning to the end of our life, Christian life. This should be what we pursue. And this is to be the case whether there is a godly man in our midst or not, he says, in reference to himself. Whether the apostle is there, whether a godly man is there or not, this should be our goal, whether present or absent, and we should stand firm. Again, we should not be cowardly. We should not retreat. We should not tuck and run, duck and run, scram from the battlefield. We have to stand firm. Stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Work together, struggle together, strive together for the faith of the gospel. In unison, he says, one spirit, one mind. And all of chapter 2, he undertakes to emphasize this point. All of chapter 2, one spirit, one mind. The spirit of Christ, the mind of Christ. That's what we should have. Exemplified with two that he names, in 2.19, Timothy, and in 2.25, Epaphroditus.
then we should not be in any way, he says, in no way alarmed by your opponents. Don't be alarmed by what they say. Don't be alarmed by their threats. Don't be alarmed by anything that they might do. Don't be anxious. Don't be alarmed. Don't be surprised. If it happened to Christ, it will happen to us. If it happened to the apostles, it will happen to us. If it will happen to Stephen, it'll happen to us. It will happen. The scriptures teach this everywhere. In fact, it teaches it in verse 29. Suffering is a gift of God. That's a paradox. Nobody wants to believe that, but suffering is a gift of God. He says it has been granted both to believe and to suffer. Verse 29, suffering is a gift of God. So we shouldn't chafe at it. We should not kick and scream. No grumbling and disputing about it. Just receive it and handle it by the grace of God and the wisdom of God according to the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God. That's what should happen when suffering comes our way. And then when we do this, it's a sign of destruction to our opponents. He says there in verse 28, a sign of destruction. God is giving our opponents a forewarning of their doom on the day of judgment. It's a forewarning. It's a precursor, an introduction to their doom if they do not repent on the day of judgment. They will suffer. And then in verse 30, further evidence that this suffering is for the Philippians and for also us. He says in 30, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. You saw me suffer, you hear me suffer, hear about me suffer, and you are suffering likewise because of the gospel. This is the true gospel. This is true sin, this is true discernment, this is true judgment. Let's have it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.